It says the remains were stuffed into sacks and thrown into a river. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Live across Hong Kong, this is Radio 3. Morning, it's 8.03 in Hong Kong on the final day of the month, Wednesday the 31st of August. A warm welcome to Money Talk on Radio 3. This is Peter Lewis with the day's business and finance headlines. It's just been announced that the Chinese Communist Party's 20th National Congress will open in Beijing on October the 16th. The meeting, held every five years behind closed doors, is the highest level political conclave of the country's leaders and will formulate major policy and elect a new party central committee. It's expected that the party will reappoint President Xi as its leader and as head of its central military military commission for an unprecedented third term. Ahead of official purchasing managers index data due for release today, Premier Li Keqiang said the strength of economic measures adopted this year were more forceful and exceeded the stimulus rolled out in 2020 at the start of the pandemic. Singapore is overhauling visa rules in the battle to attract talents from overseas and to ease a labour shortage that's contributing to wage and price pressures. New rules will allow foreigners earning a minimum of 30,000 Singapore dollars, that's about 21,500 US dollars per month, to secure a five-year working visa, with a provision that allows their dependents to also seek employment. US consumer confidence increased in August for the first time in three months. The Conference Board's Consumer Index jumped from 95.3 in July to 103.2 in August. The survey found that consumers were more optimistic in the next six months about both the labour market outlook and short-term business conditions. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Asian fund management industry consultant Stuart Aldcroft, Andrew Collier, Managing Director at Orient Capital Research and RTHK's international economics correspondent, Barry Wood. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. On Wall Street, U.S. shares fell for the third straight day to their lowest level of the month. Reserve Bank of New York, Federal Reserve Bank of New York President John Williams said yesterday the U.S. Central Bank is planning to keep monetary policy tight for some time as it curbs inflation. Stocks also fell on increasing tensions in the Taiwan Strait after Taiwan fired live ammunition at a Chinese drone for the first time. The S&P 500 fell 1.1% to 3,986, dropping below the 4,000 level for the first time since July 28th. The Dow slid 308 points, or nearly 1%, to 31,791. The Dow has lost more than half its gains now since the middle of June and sits about 6% above its summer low. The Nasdaq Composite lost 1.1% to close at 11,883. The Tech Heavy Index is about 11% above its June low. And with one trading session left in August, all three indices are on track to notch at least 3% declines for the month. Wall Street's fear gauge, the VIX Volatility Index, hit its highest level since mid-July. In Europe, the regional stock 600 index fell 0.7%. The UK's FTSE 100 dropped 0.9%. 
Hong Kong stocks fell Tuesday ahead of China PMI data later this morning and over concerns about new lockdowns in Shenzhen. The Hang Seng Index slid 74 points or 0.4 percent to 19,000. Uh, 949. The Hang Seng is on track for a monthly loss of 1%. The tech index dropped half a percent, leaving it down 2.4% so far in August. And on the mainland, the Shanghai Composite Index declined 0.4% to 3,227, leaving it down 0.8% so far for the month. China's largest property developer, Country Garden, posted a record 96% slump in profit in the first half of 2022. Unaudited net profit slumped to 612 million yuan, about 88 million US dollars, in the six months ended June. Shares of Country Garden tumbled over 4% in Hong Kong as investors worried that the poor results could hamper the developers' fundraising via equity and debt. In the commodities markets, energy prices sank overnight. Brent crude oil settled 5.5% lower at $97.84 a barrel. U.S. natural gas futures fell 6.4% to the lowest level since February the 18th. And gold is off 0.8% at $1,723 an ounce. In the bond markets, short-term rates, which are sensitive to monetary policy expectations, continued their march higher. The two-year Treasury yield rose three basis points to 3.46%. That's its highest highest level in nearly 15 years. The 10-year yield was unchanged at 3.11%, leaving the yield curve at its most inverted since early August. And in the currency markets, the US dollar index was flat. The euro this morning just above parity at one dollar and a quarter of a cent. The bucks bucks worth 138.7 Japanese yen. Sterling fell to as low as one dollar sixteen and a half cents. That's the weakest level in more than two years. And it's trading at nine Hong Kong dollars and 15 cents. The offshore Chinese yuan is at 6.92 and a quarter versus the dollar. And Bitcoin this morning. That's uh, 2% lower at 19800 dollars Not surprisingly, Asia-Pacific stocks are sinking at the open this morning. In Australia, the SX200 is down over half a percent. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 is off 0.8%. The Cosby in South Korea down 0.7%. And I'm afraid it looks like a big decline for the Hang Seng at the open of about 420 points, according to futures markets. up to 8.10. What an exciting panel of guests we have for you this morning. On the phone, as always on a Wednesday morning, Stuart Allcroft, Asia Fund Management Industry Consultants. Morning, Stuart. And good morning to you, Peter. But not an exciting list of uh, markets that you've just run through. I'm sorry about that, but yeah, it's not my, about, <laughs> not my fault, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> I've tried pressing buttons here, but it doesn't change anything. It doesn't change, <laughs> We also have on the phone Andrew Collier, who's Managing Director at Orient Capital Research. Morning, Andrew. Good morning. And over in Washington, D.C., we find our international economics correspondent, Barry Wood. Morning to you, Barry. Good morning, Peter. Um, Let's continue with some of these repercussions from Jackson Hole last week. The Bank of Korea has warned of more market volatility ahead as the Fed continues to raise rates. 
Bank of Korea Governor Ri Chang-yong said that whilst Jerome Powell's comments were not much different from expectations, he said there's a high chance of increased volatility whenever the US Federal Reserve makes a policy rate decision and the global finance and foreign exchange markets need to digest it. He said we're now independent from the government, but we're not independent from the Fed. So if the Fed continues to increase rates, it'll have a depreciation pressure for our currency. And um, yesterday, South Korea's government announced that it will be cutting annual government spending for the first time in 10 years with a budget that's about 6% smaller. The finance ministry said that the nation is announcing a total shift in its financial fiscal stance from expansionary to uh, to sound financing. Stuart, I, I bring up the Bank of Korea because it said a couple of interesting things there. First of all, it noted, which I suppose we know, but probably central banks might need reminding. They may well be independent of their government, but they're not independent at all from the Fed, are they? And what the Fed does has enormous repercussions around the region. Yes, and I, I suppose this is true from just anybody who listens to our program regularly. We are constantly talking about what the Fed is next going to do, what it has just done, and the influence it has across the world. Um, so it's really stating the obvious, but it is nevertheless true. The Fed does have massive influence, not just in the U.S., but across all markets, as the U.S. dollar is still considered the, the, the banker currency for almost all parts of the world, including China and, of course, the whole of Asia, and many Asian currencies are still uh, closely linked to the U.S. dollar in terms of, of their movement. Um, so, yes, the, the, the obvious issue is whatever the Fed does, if it increases interest rates, it's very likely to increase interest rates um, in, in Asia as a result. Is, well is this as, true of all of Asia's central banks as well, even those that are struggling mightily to try and maintain some sort of different monetary policy to the Fed, such as the Bank of Japan, the PBOC. Can that continue? Well, it's, it's not directly um, influencing, but it's indirectly influencing some of them. Um, but, you know, like, for, for example, Hong Kong, Singapore, Taiwan, all have currencies that are directly linked to the U.S. dollar. And so the policy of the, of the banks, central banks, particularly in Hong Kong and Singapore, is to adopt the same sort of uh, movement that the Fed imposes upon interest rates. And, um, and, and then that will be replicated elsewhere within the region in different ways. Now, of course, all of this is, is actually has been not quite good for the region, surprisingly, because it's shielded the, the region from the very, very steep prices of energy mm. that Europe, the UK have incurred. And so the rate of inflation, although high within the region, um, is not nearly as high as the rate of inflation as we see, that we're seeing in Europe. Andrew, one other thing that I found interesting here, which come from the finance ministry, it said that South Korea is announcing a total shift in its fiscal stance from expansionary uh, to what it now calls sound financing. It sort of raises a good point, doesn't it? Because when there's no longer free money, and we've pretty well had free money since the global financial crisis, then suddenly fiscal discipline does become um, of paramount importance. And we're probably going to have to see a lot more of this from other governments as well, aren't we? Well, that's the problem. I mean, you've got a situation where everybody's tightening their belts in terms of central government policy. And in particular, China, which has been a big driver of consumption of commodities, 
is now moving into a more a somewhat more contractionary stance, or at least moderating some of their free money policies from the past. And in terms of the the previous points about the central government policy, I mean, China is a big driver of, of inflation, and if they start um, if they are able to get their factories going again, it, there's a lot of volatility going on within China. And they've just announced that uh, an, uh, another group of cities are going to be locked down. So it, that suggests that the inflationary pressure that China has by not exporting a lot is going to be increased. So the volatility is magnified by some of these other uh, COVID and, and um, uh, fiscal policies. And it's sort of... Um well, maybe not deliberately devaluing its currency, but the yuan is being devalued, even though the PBOC is trying to push against that. Um, that's only going to increase inflation in China, isn't it? Yes. I mean, and, and it, they're, meanwhile, they're trying to uh, uh, shift the cons- to consumption over in, in the industrial sector, or at least they, they're pretending to do that. They're not actually doing much of anything like that. And, of course, if, if, if inflation increases, that's going to make consumption less of a likely outcome. Mm. So China is driving itself into a corner in terms of its reliance on the state-owned system. And uh, with their current debt loads, there, there's not a lot of fiscal expansion available to them. Barry, the markets are still trying to get their heads around what was said at Jackson Hole. And I suppose one of the things we should point out, it wasn't just the Fed, was it? We had European Central Bank officials also striking a very hawkish tone at uh, Jackson Hole. Absolutely. Look, this is uh, just as Andrew and Stuart have said. This, this global interest rate cycle in which they follow the Fed, all the emerging markets follow the Fed, and raise interest rates to protect their currencies, which are falling in value, what it all means is we've got a coordinated global slowdown underway, and China with its own problems. So, yes, as you say, Europe has got real problems there, probably more severe than any other big region of the world. The United States still mixed, but the emerging markets, whether it's Korea, Taiwan, Indonesia, India, South Africa, they're all struggling to maintain the value of their currencies. Mm -hmm. And that means that they raise interest rates and they slow growth. So it's a bloody mess. It Mm -hmm. really is globally. And we've just seen that uh, it was the uh, the Hungarian Central Bank, I think, which have just raised interest rates to something like the highest level since 2004. But we're seeing almost every week now, aren't we, central banks having to uh, jack up rates? Yes, and it's, there's no sign that this is going to change. I mean, I think China's the outlier, but uh, I rely on Stuart and, and Andrew to tell us more about that. But uh, look, this COVID situation in China is an added problem. Uh, Japan is weak, as it has been for a long time. So uh, where's the hope? I think, uh, regrettably, it comes back to the United States. Uh, Even with these interest rate rises, we've still got a pretty strong economy. Well, we've got official PMI data coming out from the mainland later on uh, this morning. Stuart, we've had a lot of sort of anecdotal evidence that the economy has slowed even further um, in August. There's been various business surveys as well, China's Beige Book. Uh, We had the US-China Business Council, uh, which said... Uh, business outlook for China has sunk to a record low. What, what do you think we're going to see from this data? Well, the data is not going to look as good as it was. I think I mean, one, one of the issues that um, China has been trying to 
perhaps protect is that the property sector, which represents as much as a third of the GDP of China, is in a very, very bad way. As we heard uh, in the news, uh, one of the major property developers just saw a 96% fall in its profits. Mm -hmm. We know that uh, one of the other major property developers has got hundreds of billions of uh, dollars of debt that uh, is struggling to repay. The property sector is in a bad way, and uh, the government have been doing all sorts of things to try to support it and not being very successful so far. So I think that whatever comes out in terms of numbers from, uh, from uh, or economic numbers, I should say, um, will we'll continue to look quite poor. Um, now, as we've also discussed in, in previous programs, you know, very often um, we don't always agree with the numbers in China because they're more difficult to, to verify, but it's the movement, the trend of the numbers that is far more important than the actual number. And so if we're starting to see worse numbers appear, then we know that the trend is downwards, and that, that, that's, that's the message, as it were. Andrew, what, what are your thoughts? What, what we should, should we expect from this PMI data this morning? Well, the PMI is definitely weakening, both for COVID reasons and also for um, uh, the, uh, essentially, they haven't been able to revive the industrial sector. And then there's the question of stimulus, which has been fairly ineffective. They've, they're doing these sort of piecemeal types of stimulus through uh, local government expansion of their fiscal capacity and sort of targeted bonds and the rest of it. But it's not being terribly effective. Um, so uh, as uh, Stuart indicated, I mean, the property sector is falling into a cliff. Um, local governments are actually reaching into their grab bag of tricks to pull out money from what they call these LGFEs, local government <laughs> financing companies, that are getting money from the state banks to try to replace the developers in buying land. Uh, but that's uh, Peter and Paul and Mary all trading uh, money with each other. It's not new money, is it? Banks. No, it's not new money, it's, it, and it's basically um, uh, it, it, those LGFEs have about 23 trillion yuan in debt. So, um, you know, no matter the PMI is not going to be likely to be, tell us that much, but it certainly is look, likely to look weak. Um, President uh, Premier Li Keqiang said that the uh, the measures that they've adopted this year are more forceful and exceeded the stimulus rolled out in 2020. But you're saying it's not very effective. So, what what's wrong? What do they need to change here? Well, I don't know how they're calculating that. that. I haven't actually done that comparison, but I would be a little surprised because a lot of the stimulus is relying on local governments to come up with the money. So mm -hmm. they've, they've got to turn, <clears throat> excuse me, to the LGFEs and other types of financial institutions. There's a certain amount of bonds that have been that are being issued, but once again, those bonds have to be purchased by other uh, entities like the banks. So that's it's, it's kind of a bit of a circle uh, of cash. So I would, uh, I haven't done the calculations, but I would be surprised if the stimulus is more than 2020. Um, I, I, one thing I would, I am expecting, Peter, in the next um, six weeks is that now we have a date for the Party Congress, uh, 16th of uh, October, things will start to uh, drift quite a bit because I think um, there will be an expectation that not until after uh, President Xi Jinping is re-elected and then he uh, brings in a new uh, set of leadership um, that, that things just won't happen. Mm. And it's quite a long period. Now, we've seen, we've actually seen almost exact replica of this in the UK. And so what we've seen in the UK might actually be replicated in China, but China's economy is quite a bit more important. Mm. So there's no chance then of a relaxation of this zero COVID policy before the Congress. 
I think that's very, very unlikely. Barry, let me ask you about this survey from the US-China Business Council. They represent 270-odd American companies uh, that operate in China. It's a very pro-China group. Their aim is to try and uh, promote trade between the United States and China. They've been very anti the sanctions uh, that the U.S. has put on China and also these export uh, restrictions. They've reported that U.S. companies' business outlook for China has sunk to a record low. Uh, What do you make of that? Well, that's not a surprise, given the political tension between the two countries and is probably not going to improve. I do think, on the other hand, Peter, that the audit agreement that was uh, concluded between the United States and China last Friday is quite significant. And we need good news. I mean, after all, this will probably prevent the delisting of more Chinese companies from the New York Stock Exchange, and they're going to have these talks uh, sometime in September in Hong Kong. That's good news. But as to uh, business confidence in China, it's very tough for any American company now to defend its operations in China. They're, they're not under threat of being closed, not really, but they're, they're under pressure to defend why they're there. Mm. So this is a tough patch. And yeah, got... I, I think you're right there, Barry, about the audit agreement. And uh, good news as it is, it may be not be well, as well received by the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, which was hoping to capture quite a lot of these China companies that might be relisting. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we have to, I mean, good, it's good news on the one hand that there is an agreement. And the very fact that the U.S. and China were able to agree on something is a, is, is a massive step forward, frankly. Indeed it is. Could I, could I jump in on here? I mean, I'm very skeptical about this. I mean, first of all, the Chinese said that they would be, have to be in charge of who's going to have access to the, to the audit companies, unlike the United States statement, which said that they would have free, free reign. And the second thing is there are some companies that may be free of data issues and, and the, the like, but the vast majority of companies, once you start running them by the huge security apparatus of the Ministry of State Security, the Cybersecurity Administration of China, all that kind of stuff, they're going to say, no, I don't think this company really should be allowed to, be, uh, to, to be, have free audit reign in the United States. CSRC has, has, uh, uh, it's basically in charge of capital raising, so it's to their benefit to try to do this. But mm. I think at the end of the day, there's only going to be a few companies that are going to run through this. When you look at the readouts and the interpretations of the agreement, it is quite starkly different between the American interpretation and the Chinese interpretation of what actually was agreed. I mean, the Americans are saying they have unfettered access to the audit documents of these companies. They don't have to go through Chinese authorities, whereas the Chinese authorities are saying it all has to be done through them. Yeah, I thought I thought that was interesting. It shows that the U.S. and the Chinese do have an interest in trying to make a deal. Uh, and certainly right. the CSRC does. And I know for a fact that the um, already hotels have been arranged for several dozen people, as far as I know, to come here for a period of, of multiple months from the United States. So there's a genuine interest in trying to work this out. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think it's going to be pretty tough. Okay. Yeah, but you have to remember, Peter, that the statements will have probably been issued to pander to the audience they mm. were being directed at. That's true. Let me ask you all about this uh, talent battle that's going on, particularly between Hong Kong and Singapore, actually. Singapore's overhauling its visa rules now uh, to try and attract foreign talent. Foreigners earning a minimum of 30,000 Singapore dollars will be able to get a new five-year working visa and also uh, their dependents will be allowed to uh, uh, get uh, working visas as well and stay in the city. 
Hong Kong's obviously competing. Uh, we're suffering the problem of this uh, population outflow and, and trying to find replacement talent for that. Hong Kong's labour force has dropped about 6% since 2018. Stuart, is, is Singapore, is it really, is this designed to try and make a grab for talent from Hong Kong, do you think? Well, absolutely. Uh, this is what Singapore is uh, is really trying to do very hard. It's uh, it, it, it had a period um, just pre-COVID uh, and then during COVID where a lot of uh, Western people, lots of expatriates left Singapore, uh, some forcibly, uh, others voluntarily. Um, and then in the sort of post-COVID era, although we're not in post-COVID in Hong Kong, um, a lot of uh, expats have been arriving in Singapore. But that, and, and the consequence of that is that all the international schools now have a 12-month waiting list and property prices have gone up. But you, you've got to remember that one of the things that Singapore does not have, that Hong Kong does have, First of all, Hong Kong doesn't apply any sort of salary requirements. And secondly, after seven years, people uh, can get a permanent ID card, and mm. therefore they have a right of residence here. And Singapore will never offer that. And that's been um, one of the, 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 the poor parts of Singapore's policy. It will continue to attract people because it's open, and, um, and Hong Kong is not. And until Hong Kong reopens... Um, I think Singapore will try its hardest to get as many people as it can. Andrew, our, our workforce here in Hong Kong is at an, an almost a decade low now because of this population um, outflow. We saw a survey by the Hong Kong Investment Funds Association that said more than a third of fund management companies now have moved some or all of their regional and global roles from Hong Kong to other places. And this could get worse because a fifth of Hong Kong residents under 35 want to leave, according to a, um, a, a recent survey, which presumably is only going to make it worse because these are the most employable people, aren't they? Young workers and their, and their families. So what do we need to do uh, to encourage talent to stick with Hong Kong? Well, that's a, that's a tough question to answer. I mean, I think the data has shown uh, uh, that a lot of the people who have left have been the younger 30 to 40s with kids the people that we really do need in Hong Kong. Um, well, first of all, the, the legal system in, on the financial side has to be shown to be uh, have no influence by the Communist Party. And like so far we have... Especially like in the first few days. Uh, uh, sorry, so far we, so, we, so far we haven't seen any inter interference, but I'm a little concerned about 2023 because the liaison office has something like a 1,000 people here. They're likely to want to get involved in some of this stuff. So, um, and, and the sanctity of contracts going forward so far is fine, but if there's any uh, budging of that, that's going to increase the, the, the brain drain. So that, the rule of law is very important in Hong Kong. Okay, well, thank you all very much. Good to hear your thoughts. That was Andrew Collier, who is Managing Director at Orient Capital Research. You also heard Stuart Alcroft, Asian Fund Management Industry Consultant. And our international economics correspondent over in Washington, D.C., Barry Wood. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Let's take another look around Asian markets, which are sinking for us this morning. The SX200 in Australia is off 0.7%. Uh, the Nikkei 225 in Japan is down about 0.8%. The Kospi in South Korea off about three quarters of a percent. And it looks like there's going to be quite a big slide of about 400 points or so at the open for the Hang Seng in just under 
uh, one hour's time. Coming up after the news, back chats with Janice Wong and Danny Gittings. The weather forecast for today, hot, sunny periods, few thunderstorms and showers. The maximum temperature is good. Uh, going to be around 32 degrees and then there's going to be sunny intervals, a few showers and thunderstorms in the next couple of days. Temperature right now is 29 degrees, 82% relative humidity. Time's 8.30. Here's Andrew Shrosky with the Half Hour News. A school principal says it won't be easy for secondary schools to maintain full-day in-person lessons when a new vaccine rule takes effect in two months' time. Right now, schools can hold full-day classes if 90% of the student population has had two COVID jabs. From November, that increases to three. Dion Chen, the chairman of the Hong Kong Direct Subsidy Scheme Schools Council, says between 260 and 300 schools have applied for full-day class resumption when the new term starts this week. But he says younger students need only two vaccine doses and must wait 150 days between their second and third jabs when they turn 12. He told Ben Che that schools cannot, that cannot meet the 90% threshold by November would need to return to half-day classes. I think like at the beginning, especially like in the first few days of the new school year, and uh, the school, we still do not have the, uh, the figures and all the data on three uh, doses vaccination from students. So uh, certainly it will cause some uh, time for the school to collect this data in the first week or first two weeks of the new school year. And currently, what is the COVID vaccination rate uh, like at the moment for secondary schools? Well, as far as I know, it's quite high for two doses. Uh, as per the government data, almost 200 60-something to 300 schools, they have applied for the full-day school resumption on 1st of September. So uh, I believe that the vaccination rate for the second doses, I mean with three doses in secondary school is quite high. Health officials have reported another 8,848 COVID-19 cases, 237 of them imported. 13 more patients with COVID have died. Dr. Chuang Shukwan from the Center for Health Protection says the authorities expect a further increase in the number of cases. We all understand that BM.5 has been the prevailing strain in many places over the world and including Hong Kong at the moment. So we understand that BA.5 is more transmissible. So this may uh, cause a further increase in number of cases as the uh, BM.5 further increases. The United Nations has launched an emergency appeal for 160 million U.S. dollars to help Pakistan cope with the flooding that's inundated large swathes of the country. Secretary General Antonio Guterres said the aid would help more than 5 million of the neediest for an initial six months. The Pakistani people are facing a monsoon on steroids, the relentless impact of epochal levels of rain and flooding. The climate catastrophe has killed more than 1,000 people, with many more injured. Millions are homeless, schools and health facilities have been destroyed, livelihoods are shattered, critical infrastructure wiped out, and people's hopes and dreams have washed away. The scale of needs is rising like the floodwaters, and it requires the world's collective and prioritized attention. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Janice Wong and your guest presenter is Danny Gittings. Today we're talking about the tightened COVID restrictions for secondary schools just ahead of the start of the new academic year. 
The government says at least 90% of students must be double vaccinated for local schools to hold full day in-person classes when students return tomorrow, with the requirement rising to free jabs by November. Primary schools and kindergartens, meanwhile, can only hold half-day classes for the time being, as the vaccination rate for young children is still too low. Now this comes as a new survey found that the pandemic has made young people less willing to socialise under social distancing rules. Many say they're worried about maskless interactions with their friends when things return to normal. So how will students and schools be affected? Will the effects extend beyond the classroom? Will the new rules push more parents to get their kids jabbed? against COVID. And after 9.15, we'll be looking at how effective the rent control law has been in protecting the interests of people who live in subdivided flats.